We have to be mindful to catch all of these things. So be as mindful as you can, because then you'll notice those moments when you let go. When there is no craving, when things are absolutely okay, just the way they are. Maybe some of you are experiencing that right now. And if you're not mindful, you're going to miss it. And what you're going to miss out on is that sense of freedom. And not freedom in the sense of, I'm free and I can do anything I want. It's freedom in the sense of spaciousness. Relaxed, easy, peaceful, contented. Mindfulness Outreach Initiative is a nonprofit insight meditation organization located in Omaha, Nebraska. We provide meditation instruction based on ethics, compassion, and wisdom, as well as social outreach programs based on transformation and healing. To join the MOI community or to practice generosity, please visit our website at mindfulnessoutreachinitiative.org. So welcome, everyone. It's good to see you all here on this beautiful evening. So the topic I chose for tonight is craving and clinging. Something I'm very familiar with. I don't know about the rest of you, but something that I'm very familiar with. And how craving and clinging fit into this practice, how we are bound by them, how we are entrapped by them. In fact, the translation of the Pali word is fetter, right? Like a chain or a rope that ties you up, that fetters you. And craving and clinging go together pretty closely. Obviously, craving leads to clinging. And I'll explain that a little bit. I'll elaborate on that just a little bit. There is a process by which things tend to arise. And these things are not necessarily linear, but they are certainly conditions for each other. So first, there's contact. Contact with an object. Contact with something. And that contact happens through the senses, the sense organs. So we have a visual contact with a lamp. And then there is a feeling tone that arises. And that feeling tone is either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant, so sort of neutral. And a perception arises. So we have the contact, we have the visual, there's a, a shape and a color that registers in the brain. There's an association of a very deep emotional quality called a feeling tone. And then there's perception. We look back in the mind very quickly and we recognize, oh, that's a lamp. You know, we associate it with something in the past. And that perception, if it's a new object, often isn't very clear, which is why little babies and little children, it's what's that, what's that? Because they don't have that memory bank, that bank of knowledge to check against. So sometimes people will look at that childlike quality and really admire it because children are so open, because they don't know how to reference that. They'll know pleasant or unpleasant. They'll know there's something there, but they won't know what it is. They haven't reified it yet. They haven't made it sort of solid and concrete in their minds. 
And that can be a desirable quality to not have that experience of perception. But it's also very useful to have perception as well because it enables us to move more quickly through things that could otherwise take some time. And frankly, if we didn't have the ability to perceive very quickly and recognize, we probably wouldn't be here. We would have been lunch. Oh, that's a lion. <laughs> Don't go that way, right? These things are not bad. They are just part of the process. They're part of what happens as we make contact with the world. So, we have a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling tone. We have a perception. And then we start to think about it. Well, that's a really pretty lamp. I wonder where I could get it. You just heard me go through this, at least some of you did, about Hawaiian shirts. Oh, you have the best shirts. Oh, thank you. I just love the shirts that so-and-so, blah, 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 and off the mind goes. And that is a manifestation of desire of craving, of wanting. It doesn't necessarily have to be some sort of driving, overwhelming, strong desire. It's just a little kind of quick thing. And all of us experience this all the time, moment by moment by moment. There are these little cravings and desires. And the, the flip side of craving, of course, is aversion, the desire not to have something unpleasant happen you know, not to stub your toe, not to have a painful or unpleasant experience. And they're not always really very apparent because of that. They fly under the radar. We are not conscious of them. And I'm sure most of you can think of examples of this. Even as you're sitting here, if you sort of watch the mind, oh, I wish the AC were turned down a little bit. Oh, it's cold in here. I don't like it. Or that fan is blowing, I don't want the fan on. Or the noise of the, whatever that is over there, air purifier. We all have these little thoughts that bubble up in the mind that arise from craving. Now the word in Pali for craving is tanha, tanha, which literally means thirst. As if you're in a desert and you're parched and you're wanting water. So even craving that isn't terribly apparent or overwhelming has that quality of pulling, of being tethered to something, of being in the grip of, as if you were in the grip of some great thirst. The next step in that process is clinging. So we've got this craving or aversion. We either want to push something away that is undesirable, or we want to hold on to something that is. Now, sometimes if it's a neutral feeling tone and a fairly neutral object, like it's a lamp or a wall, you know, we don't like try to take the wall out of the house and take it with us. It doesn't make any sense. But what happens in the mind often with neutral things is there is a sense of, oh, nothing's going on here. This is boring. And the mind says to itself, mind, I don't want to be bored. I want something exciting and stimulating. 
And so we go out of our way even to find painful or unpleasant things that are exciting and stimulating so that we can say, oh, I don't want that. Notice in your sitting practice how often, try to catch sitting with the breath, sitting with the breath, and the mind goes, oh, this, this is boring. There's nothing happening here. Boom, off the mind goes into a story. See if you can catch that moment in your practice where the mind says, ah, this is neutral. I want something more interesting. And we can talk a little bit later about how to work with that. So even neutral feelings can lead to craving. They don't always have to be pleasant or unpleasant. Neutral feelings can lead to craving. Craving then allows for clinging to arise because we want something that we don't have. When we get that something that we don't have, we try to hold on to it. It's like, wow, I really like this car. I want to keep it nice and shiny. Don't let the birds poop on it. And then somebody in the parking lot whacks your car with their car door. What happens then? Or whatever it is for you that you cling to. It might be a relationship. It might be a career or a job. It might be this body. I don't want this body to change. I want it to stay young forever. Obviously, that doesn't happen. <laughs> so that's the clinging part. Now, clinging can be just as apparent if we kind of consider the flip side. Well, I went through a terrible divorce. I never want that to happen again. So I'm going to make sure that I set my life up so that I don't have to go through that again. That's still clinging. It's just clinging related to aversion. It's clinging to a different lifestyle that doesn't lead to that. So I'm going to live alone for the rest of my life. Clinging. Clinging. Clinging has a tendency to shut out all of the other alternatives. So if we are clinging to whatever it is, a belief, this body, this mind, whatever that might be for you, it closes things down. It narrows the perspective. I want this. It also tends to solidify a sense of self as an essential thing. I want this. Now I have something to protect and defend. So what will I do? I will build a wall. And that wall isn't transparent. It's opaque. We can't see through it. So it shuts down alternatives. And it also leads to, everybody, dukkha, suffering. Because we cling to things with the vain hope that they're not going to change, that they're going to stay with us, that they're going to stay the same. We crave things that we don't have, and we are disappointed that we don't have them. 
We try to push things away that we don't want because we want it to be something other than it is. And we are dissatisfied, discontented. It's not a peaceful feeling, is it? Think about it. I told a story a few years ago, and I don't know if I can remember it because it happened quite a while ago. You'll remember this one. I was driving along Dodge Street. It was getting near lunchtime, a little before lunchtime. So I wasn't really terribly hungry. And all of a sudden, into my mind comes this overwhelming craving for something truly delicious, absolutely fantastic. What was it? A Burger King fish sandwich. Yeah, and some of you are going, oh my God, are you kidding? But that was it. I mean, you know, I can't explain it other than, yeah, they're okay. And I was overwhelmed. I actually started salivating, just like when Pavlov rang the bell and his dogs, I was literally almost drooling. I was so hungry for this Burger King fish sandwich, that thirst, that craving. And I knew what was going on. I was even kind of chuckling to myself about it while it was happening. And what did I do? I drove into Burger King on 114th Street and got myself a fish sandwich meal. Not just the sandwich, but the fries and the drink too. That's probably like a whole day's worth of calories there, right? And being the, the child of Depression-era parents, don't waste food. You clean your plate. I didn't waste it. I felt terrible. <laughs> An hour later, I felt horrible. See, that's what cleaning does. Now, it's kind of funny, you know, and it's not a terribly harmful thing, but think about it. That's simply a manifestation that can also lead to addiction, to intoxicants, can lead to a great deal of unhappiness, can lead to fighting and violence. This is mine. I want to keep it. It's not yours. Discord within families to the point of violence or extreme dysfunction, abuse, all of these things are a manifestation of a result of craving and clinging, of wanting things to be a certain way, and of having this, this sense of a self that I have to protect and defend. And by a self, I mean an unchanging, essential being. Because you see, if we realize that there is nothing here that does not change, then what is there to protect? If this is all a process, what is there to hold on to? What could be held on to? It is not possible. It is not possible to claim. We sure try, though, don't we? All of us, all the time. Notice, too, that I use the word thirst and tanha. I haven't used the word desire yet, which I'm sure you've all heard in talks, reading it, which is another translation of this word tanha. And the reason is, desire for me is a little bit conceptual. 
we don't really embody the feeling of desire very well. We can. I mean, if we really pay attention to it, what's it like to desire? And we can sort of close our eyes and feel that in the body. But boy, we sure know what thirst feels like, don't we? It's more experiential. So I would suggest to you that you play with the way these translations work. Craving, we feel that. If you're a smoker and you have a craving for a cigarette, or if you're an alcoholic and you have a craving for a drink, or if you're a workaholic and you have a craving for getting ahead, or whatever might be your thing, television, video games, it can be anything, you feel that in the body. And it's important to notice that. It's important to notice that bodily feeling. What is the sensation that arises in the body when craving arises? What is the sensation that arises in the body when we are clinging to something or trying to? How does that feel? And you might notice, thus the word fetter, that when we cling to something, what happens? We get pulled by it, don't we? It's like wherever that thing is going, we're going to go too. We might try to wrestle it one way or another to control it, but just as much as we control it, it controls us. So we are bound to it. We are chained to it. Like a bull with a ring through its nose, we are led by it. If we can generate a sense of curiosity about this whole process or about any part of it, like, oh, that's craving, you know, you notice it first. Well, what's that about? Where's that coming from? Those kinds of questions that kind of curiosity can be very, very helpful, very useful, because it can then lead us to be more mindful. It can lead us to some very interesting answers to questions that we might have. The only caution that I would have is that we have to be a little bit careful about over-investigating. We can spend so much time thinking about something and trying to parse it out that we end up making something that wasn't there. So investigation when we're curious is just, oh, what's that about? And just notice for 10 seconds, 5, 10, 15 seconds, what comes up? And maybe nothing does. Be careful because notice the wanting for an answer. Notice the wanting for an answer. So curiosity generally, in my experience, only leads to clinging and craving or craving and clinging if it's overdone, if things are over-investigated. But the sense of curiosity itself is really a very valuable tool in this practice and in this path. Ask a lot of questions, be curious. So what's it like to not crave? What's it like to not crave? What's it like to not cling? All of you have heard about let it go, right? You know, you've heard let it go, let it go. And you just go, oh, come on, you know? It's not that easy. And for the most part, that, that's true. It's not that easy. 
But I'm going to give you an example here tonight that you have all done and you have been experts at letting go. You've done it perfectly. Want to know what it is? I want you to think back to a time when you had to pee really, really badly. When you had to go so badly you could barely move and you had to find a bathroom. Think about what that felt like. Oh my God, I can't move. I gotta find. And you get to the bathroom and you get in there and you do your business. Oh, what a relief. Ooh, boy. Did any of you go out, find some venue where you could drink as much liquid as you wanted and try to recreate that experience again? No, right? It was over. You were done with it. It was a relief and you were done. You all let go beautifully. That's it. No craving, no clinging. Just, whew, done. Done. That's what letting go is like. How did that feel? Now, it may not have been particularly joyful. You didn't go, oh, I just peed. It was great. But I'll bet it felt really free. I'll bet it felt really easy. Like, oh, yeah. Even a little bit. So be aware, and I, I'm going to back up just a little bit here, and I'm, I'm hoping this is obvious, but I'll state it anyway, that mindfulness is key to all of this. We have to be mindful to catch all of these things. So be as mindful as you can, because then you'll notice those moments when you let go. When there is no craving, when things are absolutely okay, just the way they are. Right here, right now. Maybe some of you are experiencing that right now. And if you're not mindful, you're going to miss it. And what you're going to miss out on is that sense of freedom. And not freedom in the sense of, I'm free and I can do anything I want. It's freedom in the sense of spaciousness. Relaxed, easy, peaceful, contented, okayness. I'll be the first to admit that most of the time, I'm not mindful enough to catch craving as it arises. Sometimes I get lucky, but most of the time I see it after the fact. Oh, there's craving here. After it's already come up. Maybe even after I've done a lot of ruminating about it. Maybe even after I've acted on it. Oh, I bought the Hawaiian shirt. Oh, geez, that was craving. Okay. That reflection that sort of waking up to it that we can do is also very, very valuable. Don't discount that just because it came after the fact. Reflection is a huge part of this practice. So if you notice that you gave into a craving, you had the cigarette, you lashed out at your spouse or your kids, you did whatever out of a sense of craving or aversion, 
Notice that and see if you can reflect back, what did that feel like? How did that feel in the body? What was the mind like at that point? Sometimes you can even walk it back to, oh, I see where that arose. Sometimes. Especially if, it, if you catch it early. So reflection is very, very important. If we act out of craving or clinging, especially if we act in a harmful way, reflection is so helpful. Because then we can have the intention, we can generate the intention, oh, that was not a happy thing. Even if we got what we wanted, let's say we enjoy good food, and we just had this delicious meal that maybe a friend prepared for us, and we're so grateful. And even if that sense of delight is there, if we really look at it deeply, we notice that as the experience of the meal fades, and please be aware, I'm not talking about the connection between people while they eat. That's a totally different thing. I'm talking about the meal itself, the food itself. As that experience fades, two things happen. We miss it. Oh, gee, you know, it's kind of a letdown. And we want more. We want to do it again. And if we can notice that process as it's happening, we can then step in and say, oh, it didn't lead to peace and contentment. It led to discontent. It led to dukkha. It led to suffering. Even if it's just a little bit, it's still not being contented with what you have, with things as they are. We want it again. That sense of wanting, thirst. And we can reflect on, well, what would be an alternative to that? What would be a healthier way to approach this? It's important to understand that enjoying a good meal is not bad. And the enjoyment itself, the appreciation, I think is probably a better word, is not the problem. The problem is indulging in it, getting lost in it, and the clinging and the craving that goes with it. That's the problem. The attachment is the problem, not the experience itself. It's pretty common for people who don't know a lot about the Buddhist teachings to think that the Buddha taught nihilism the denial of anything sensual as bad. The sense that the earth and this world, worldly things, should be scorned. We should be aloof from them, indifferent to them. And that is not what he taught. That is not what he taught. What he taught was, don't cling. Don't cling. Some of you, most of you, have probably heard the Four Noble Truths. There's this thing called dukkha, dissatisfaction, discontent. There is a cause for dukkha, craving, clinging. 
There's a way out of dukkha. Don't cling. Don't crave. Just be with what is. Appreciate. Don't cling. A friend asked about passion. Because you hear that word a lot now. What's your passion? They specifically talked about if I go to an art museum and I love the paintings on the wall and I want to learn more about them and I enjoy that process, is that a problem? And implicit in that was, I don't want it to be a problem because, you know, if it is, then I'm going to have a hard time with this whole Buddhist thing. If someone blinded you the next day and you could no longer look at paintings, would that be a problem? And if the answer to that is even a little bit yes, if you would miss it even that much, then yeah, it's a problem because there's clinging there. There's craving there. Ultimately, these things are not satisfying. And that can be a very, very difficult thing for us to take. Because we all have these things that are our favorite things to do. And they aren't necessarily harmful. Please understand, this is not about good and bad or harmful and wholesome. Most people that I know consider travel, especially travel of sort of the investigative kind where curiosity leads the way, to be a really good thing. We learn more about other cultures, about other places. We broaden our experience. And that is true. Until we crave more travel. And we're disappointed if we can't get it. And we get mad because we can't get it. And we feel entitled. So that's where it becomes a problem. That's where it becomes a problem. That's where the problem of dukkha arises. Discontent, dissatisfaction. And the genius of the Buddha was, he said, look, I don't teach any of these other things. I teach the end of suffering. I teach suffering and I teach the end of suffering. And the way to the end of suffering is through not clinging, not craving. And the Noble Eightfold Path is how you get there. Those steps are the way to do it. It doesn't mean that it's bad if you have an experience that leads to some joy and some happiness. That's not a bad thing. Just know it for what it is. It's going to change. It's not going to be permanent. You're not going to be able to hold on to it. You cannot cling to it. And as long as that is practiced, not clinging, not craving, then you'll be fine. It's a very simple thing. It is also extremely difficult to do. Because craving and clinging can happen so quickly in the mind. Very quickly. People cling to meditation practice. And if you haven't yet, if you continue this practice, 
you will find that sometime when you're meditating, you will find yourself in a beautiful, blissful state of being. And it will feel wonderful. Maybe the thoughts stop or slow down, things calm down, the body calms down, things get quiet. And you could just sit there forever. And it really is wonderful. And the next time you sit, the mind's going crazy and the knee hurts and the ankle hurts and my elbow itches and, oh my God, I can't do this. And ah, my kid is doing thus and such or whatever. Where did that go? Why can't I do this again? Sometimes we even start beating ourselves up. Oh, I'm a failure at this. I can't do this. By the way, that's also a face of clinging and craving. When we beat ourselves up, self-deprecation, I'm just a terrible person. I did this horrible thing. I thought this horrible thing. I said this horrible thing. I can't meditate. It's never going to work. It's also clinging because it's clinging to an identity. Can you see how that shuts down the alternative? It may or may not be true. Maybe you did say a terrible thing that was really harmful, that really was hurtful. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes we lash out in anger. It doesn't mean that that's who we are. It just means that's what happened. That's what arose. That's what occurred. And certainly we can make amends. We can do all we can sort of in the physical, worldly realm to rectify that. We can also investigate it see it as a process, and have the intention not to do so again. That's what sila, that is what morality is all about. It doesn't mean we're perfect. It means we have the intention and we make the effort to continue to practice in a way that reduces harm, that is non-harming. Sincerely and honestly. The other thing that I talked a little bit about previously was this whole sense of self and building up or believing in or trying to cling to some sort of essential being that is at the center of who we are. And you'll hear people talk about finding their center as if there was truly such a thing. Now, I understand what being centered means, coming into the body, really, is what they're talking about, being present, being mindful, being here now, is what most people mean by being centered. But if we really look, where's the center of this? Where is the essence of this? If I take this body apart and pull this hand off, is that hand Mark? Is this body still marked without the hand? What if I take both the arms off? Is this arm marked? Is this body still marked without the arms? What if I pull the heart out? Is that mark? Is this mind mark? This consciousness, this awareness, is that mark? If it were, then it would always be there. Or another way of looking at this is, 
if I want to say to myself, self, this consciousness is you, then what happens when I'm not conscious? What happens when I sleep? What happens when I die? What happens if I'm unconscious in a hospital bed? Where did Mark go? So the question isn't so much, is there a self, but is it wise to try to find a self in these things that change? Now, if you can find the thing that does not change in this world, in this entire universe, then by all means, please find a self there. What the Buddha taught us was that he looked really, really hard. He really did try to find a self because previous, and to this day, but previous to Buddhist belief or Buddhist way of looking at things, in India, there was this belief in Atman, in an essential self that was very, very deep that one could join with and be at one with. And Buddha looked and looked and looked and said, ain't no such thing. It's not there. And he encouraged each of us to check our own experiences to see if we could find that. If you can find the thing that doesn't change. That also sort of brings up who is clinging? Who is craving? Who is seeing? Who is thinking? Who is hearing? Who needs to pee? And we begin, when we sort of crack open this thinking a little bit, to see that it's all just a process. That it's not self-clinging to, inherently, that it's just clinging, craving, seeing, hearing. And that the thing that we like to call a self is something that we've invented or something that we are trying to hold on to and make permanent and keep from changing. That's a little harder to wrap your head around because this is not a conceptual thing. It's experiential. That's what this practice and particularly what meditation will do for you over a long period of time, as you deepen your practice, you will begin to see the process unfold. Well, there's, there's nothing behind this. It's just stuff happening. Uh, a talk or two ago, I talked about conditionality. That conditions happen and something else arises. And one of those conditions goes away and those things are no longer there. That's what you can see through this. It's a little scary, you know, for most people to look at the idea that, well, this is not self, this is not self, this is not self. Well, where am I? What is all of this? I don't like this. It's, it can be uncomfortable. And if that happens, one, talk to another Dhamma practitioner, because they'll help they'll cool you down a little bit. Talk to one of us teachers, if you can get a hold of us. Um, that would be a good thing. It's the thing to notice, though, is that sometimes when we're scared, what we're afraid of is the unknown and we're afraid of being free. 
we're afraid of being free. Because it really does mean that anything can happen at any time. That what we make assumptions about in the world are really more probabilities. Yes, it's highly probable that the sun will come up tomorrow. We all sort of, but it's not a certainty. And there was a physicist, I can't remember his name, but he said, our lust for certainty is our most dangerous predilection. Our lust for certainty is our most dangerous predilection. Because we want things to be certain. We try to cling to them. We want them to be a certain way, and they are not. This is not an easy path. There's a, I think it's in the Vinaya, where the, the Buddha gives a discourse, a sutta, and he says, if you had to fight alone 10,000 armies, and 10,000 in ancient India was like the biggest number anybody could think of. So think of trillions, a trillion armies with a trillion men each, that would be easier easier than becoming an arahat. This is not an easy path. That's not the point. That said, it's not all or nothing. The more you do it, the more you practice, the more you're mindful, the more you work with it, the more benefit you will gain from it. How do we actually work with this in day-to-day -day life? A couple of things. There is a thing called renunciation, which Anne talked about a couple of talks ago. You might want to go back and listen to the talk about renunciation. Renunciation doesn't mean necessarily giving up pleasure. It is more of a gentle reminder. Does this lead to ultimate happiness? Is there a greater happiness to be had by not doing this? So there is a greater happiness, a greater pleasure in the pleasure of being at peace, being contented. It's more subtle in my experience, but it is ultimately more satisfying. Check it out. See if that's true for you. It may take you, are you ready? Years to find that. It takes a while. You have to do this path for a long enough time with enough dedication to get to the point where it's like, yeah, it's cool to be at peace. To just be able to go, okay, that's what's happening now. And let it be at that. The thing you need to remember just real quickly is I can teach knowledge. I can convey my experience. I cannot teach wisdom. That's something you arrive at on your own by doing this practice. So that's why investigation and curiosity is so important. Because as we investigate what is happening here, what is the nature of this? Is what he said really true for me? And if we find that truth, we find that it's so that everything changes, it doesn't pay to cling, and, oh, wow, it really does feel good to be at peace and calm and contented. Then what happens is that clinging to pleasurable worldly experience begins to dissipate in and of itself. 
that begins to diminish. This can also be disturbing. For those of you who are involved with a partner, if your sexual appetite suddenly diminishes or diminishes over time, they can get a little upset. Or if certain other interests that you had in common decline, it can be upsetting to the self. You know, you were really interested in food and wine and collecting and art, things like that. And all of a sudden it's like, yeah, they're nice. I can appreciate them. But if I don't have them, it's okay. I can do without. It's not a problem. And not, I can do without. It's not the suffering martyr here. It's, I'm happy to do without. It's not a problem. And please don't think that I'm perfect at this by any stretch of the imagination. That said, I've seen some of this in my own practice, and I hope you will too, because it leads to a real sense of contentment. And the manifestation of it is imperturbability. You're less easily perturbed by the circumstances going on around you. You don't get as angry as quickly, or if you get angry, it doesn't last as long. You're not sad for as long. Flip side is true also. You're not, you know, rapturous for as long. There's still a sense of joy and happiness there, but it's a little more subtle, a little more refined. One of the things that goes by the wayside as one gets closer to the end of the defilements, what, what we would call enlightenment or nirvana, one of the first things to go is clinging to beliefs. And see, everything I tell you here is conceptual. It's all belief. It's all what I believe out of my experience, what I have seen to be true for me. So you're going to have to check this out for yourself, and you're going to notice that that changes over time. And what you found to be so two or three years ago may, long, may no longer be so. And the only thing that I would caution you about is that you have to be open, honest, and humble. Open, honest, and humble. Brutally honest. I was wrong. I was wrong. It doesn't work that way. Humble. I was wrong. I don't know. Uh, Suzuki Roshi used to talk about don't know mind. What happens after death? Don't know. Haven't died. What happens with this? What happens with that? Don't know. See, because that keeps you open to the next thing that might arise. The minute that you know tends to narrow the field a bit, tends to shut down other possibilities. So we'll go ahead and close for tonight. May the benefits of this practice be a benefit for all beings. Thank you all so much for coming tonight. May all be happy and peaceful and content. Thank you for listening. We know your time is valuable, so we are grateful you choose to spend it with the MOI community. This podcast is supported by listeners like you. To make an offering, please visit us at mindfulnessoutreachinitiative.org. 
and tune in each week for more Dharma talks, reflections, and teachings centered in the insight meditation tradition.